the we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pound. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st Century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And good evening. Welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I'm Kevin Randall. Before I get to my guest, who is becoming more and more famous by the minute, I just wanted to say one thing, uh, and I've said this a couple times in the past. People have asked me about my military background and what happened during uh, my experiences in the military, and I've put up a blog called www.vietnamgroundzero.blogspot.com, Vietnam Ground Zero, all one word, and this is a list of my uh, memories of the Vietnam War. Going back quite a while, and that's why it says on there, my mostly true experiences, because I'm relying on my memory for most of this. And the other thing I wanted to say quickly, I thought at one point of publishing some of the letters I'd sent home from Vietnam, because I do have them all, and I was reading over them the other day and realized uh, they're really crummy. <laughs> Uh, I was 19 at the time, so they weren't really well thought out things. And I've got copies of letters my father sent home from the Pacific during World War II and uh, my father-in-law's experiences in World War II as a naval officer. And these are much better letters than I was writing home. So that probably is not going to happen with the, the publication of the letters I sent home from Vietnam. Uh, I'm now joined by Dr. Abraham Loeb. Who is, a, who is the Frank B. Beard, Jr., professor of science at Harvard University, where he was the longest-serving chair in the history of the astronomy department from 2011 to 2020, and where he directs the Black Hole Initiative and the Institute for Theory and Computation, a member of the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology, as well as the advisor on the advisory board for the educational platform Einstein Visualize the Impossible. He also chairs the advisory committee for the Breakthrough Starshot Initiative and the Board of Physics and Astronomy of the National Academies and Services as a science theory director for all initiatives of the Breakthrough Prize Foundation. He is the author of five books and 800 scientific papers. Uh, Dr. Loeb is an elected fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the American Physical Society, and the International Academy of Aeronautics. In 2012, Time selected Dr. Loeb as one of the 25 most influential people in space. He lives near Boston, Massachusetts, but we won't hold that against him. Dr. Loeb, welcome to A Different Perspective. Thanks for having me. I'm glad you could fit me in among all those interviews you're doing these days. Well, it, it looks like there is a lot of attention, which is good news. It means that the public is uh, interested in this, in this subject that we will discuss, um, despite the pushback from uh, the scientific community. And I do think it's about time for uh, science and the public interest to engage uh, closer to each other. I was. I, we're we're going to move on from where I was going to go because of, of what you said there. I interviewed Dr. James Van Allen literally decades ago on the topic of UFOs, and I wondered about uh, the scientific community looking down upon him for that, and he, he mentioned that he thought his uh, position in science was secure enough that he didn't have to worry about that too much, which I thought was kind of a, a wonderful thing uh, that he was now in a position where he could... Uh, I guess, uh, talk about those things without having to worry about how people would uh, view what his legacy in science was. Do you have any concerns about that? I mean, you've written 800 papers, and I haven't even read 800 scientific papers. So, <laughs> No, I mean, I don't really care um, how many likes I have on Twitter or whether my colleagues uh, approve uh, what I say, because, um, you know, I have a tenured appointment at Harvard University, and uh, 
the purpose of tenure is basically to allow you, I mean, people give trust, put trust in you that uh, you know what you're talking about and you will not do <clears throat> something that doesn't seem, uh, you know, reasonable. And um, I basically, in this case that we are, we will be discussing, I, I just followed evidence on a, a very anomalous uh, object that didn't fit quite fit to anything we have seen before and uh, concluded that concluded that it might be artificial in origin, and they uh, wrote a book, book about it. And of course, uh, the reason I'm speaking to you is because uh, my colleagues are not willing to uh, consider this possibility whatsoever, and uh, that's why I look so different. Uh, if everyone would be willing to discuss this possibility, then it would become sort of a matter of common sense, and nobody would speak with me necessarily. Well, let me divert the conversation quickly here because I have one question I want to ask you and then we'll get to the important stuff. And I, I prepared you with this question, which you're driving your Mustang at light speed and you turn on the headlights, what happens? Right. So um, actually, this uh, thought experiment was uh, uh, considered by Albert Einstein when he uh, came up with his special theory of relativity. And the point is, according to Einstein's theory, one of the assumptions he makes, which appears to be fully consistent with all the data we have, is that the speed of light uh, is independent of the frame uh, in which you are sitting. So if you're in the Mustang or if you're looking at the Mustang, the speed of light is the same. Uh, and um, the only thing that changes is, of course, um, you know, the, the frequency of the radiation that is emitted changes by the Doppler effect, just like a siren that changes its pitch when, you know, a, a car is approaching you versus when it recedes from you, that the pitch changes. And, but the, that has nothing to do with the speed. I mean, the speed of light is independent. And so... Um, what you so you would see the flash of light. It's just that the Mustang will, uh, you know, move very close to that speed, and uh, therefore it will pass by you roughly at the same time as the light is passing. So there, there will not be much of a time delay. When you're looking at a Mustang that moves uh, very slowly, then you see the light first, and then uh, after a while you will see the Mustang passing by you. But that's the only difference. Well, I was I, my my thought process was if you turned on the lights, the light would be just sort of a glow around the uh, with the object as it's moving forward. But because it's at the speed of light, you get no reflected light from it or anything like that, and it would probably run over you before you even saw it. Oh and yeah, no, I mean the light will arrive to you almost at the same j just before the Mustang because it's moving close to the speed of light. So indeed, the time delay between when you see the light first. And when the Mustang runs over you, will be very short. You won't have time to respond. But uh, the point is, the light propagates at the same speed, irrespective of whether the Mustang that emits it is moving or not. You will get the light at the same time. But when the Mustang runs over you, that depends on the on the speed of the Mustang. <laughs> well, that's that's kind of what I finally puzzled out myself after thinking about this for a long time. Uh, let's let's get back to the real topic at hand, though, and which I'm sure the uh, listeners want to hear about. Um, what suggested to you that this artifact was artificial as opposed to some kind of a, uh, a, na a natural interloper into the solar system? Right. So this was um, this object is called Oumuamua because it was discovered by a telescope in Hawaii. And uh, the word Oumuamua in the Hawaiian language means scout or a messenger from far away. And uh, it, it was discovered as the first object uh, that was found near the Earth that came from outside the solar system. It was moving much too fast to be bound to the sun, gravitationally bound. And so uh, clearly it, it came from outside the solar system. And at first, people thought, well, it must be just like the rocks that we have seen before in the solar system, the asteroids or the comets. Comets are rocks covered with ice. So when they get close to the sun, the ice evaporates and you get this beautiful uh, cometary tail of gas and, and dust behind it. But uh, this object didn't have any cometary tail. So then the astronomers said, well, it's not a comet then. Uh, but then it showed also a uh, push away from the sun that is usually accounted for by 
the rocket effect of a cometary evaporation. And, and in order to give this uh, push that was uh, detected, um, the comet had to lose about a tenth of its mass, a substantial amount of, of, uh, of its weight. And uh, we would have seen that, but we haven't seen that. The Spitzer Space Telescope looked very carefully at this object, couldn't find anything. So then the, there was a puzzle, how to explain this extra push that the object exhibits without uh, the rocket effect of a cometary evaporation. And uh, the only thing that came to my mind is from the reflected sunlight. You know, just like you have a sail on a boat that is being pushed by reflecting wind, air, uh, you can push a sail by reflecting light off it. And this is called the light sail. And we are currently developing this technology for space exploration ourselves. Uh, and the advantage is that the spacecraft doesn't need to carry the fuel with it. Um, I should say also that uh, in September 2020, about a few months ago, there was another object discovered um, that um, showed an extra push uh, from reflected sunlight without a cometary tail. And this one was traced back to be a rocket booster of uh, a 1966 mission to the moon. And uh, we know that this one was a hollow object with very thin, a very thin surface, and that's why it exhibited the push. It had a large area for its weight. And uh, we know that it was artificial, a rocket booster that we produced. In the case of Oumuamua, we don't know who produced it. Well, let me ask you this, because you're talking about it being sort of a, uh, I guess, a light sail. Uh, if you moved away from close proximity of a star, uh, how how far out effective would this light sail be away from a star? How long could it expect a push from a star? Oh, that that's a good question. So uh, starlight is not giving, uh, unless, unless the sail passes very close to a star, the push is uh, not very significant. Um, so what we are currently developing is the possibility of uh, launching a sail to a high speed using a laser beam that we produce artificially and then shining on the on the sail because that can give you much high, much larger speeds um, uh, than the sun can the sunlight the problem with sunlight uh, the illumination drops the the flux of radiation drops as inversely with the distance squared so uh, you don't get a lot of push unless you pass very close to the sun. And, um, you know, it could have been uh, not necessarily a light sail. It, it, it could have been, uh, Oumuamua could have been just a very thin surface layer that was ripped apart from a bigger object like a spaceship or something. Um, but the point is, the main point is that it, it, it didn't resemble anything that we have seen before. And Therefore, we should consider the possibility that it was produced artificially. Uh, another thing I, I didn't mention was that uh, as it was tumbling, as it was spinning uh, over eight hours, uh, it looked like the light that we received, reflected sunlight, changed by a factor of 10. And that implies a very extreme geometry where the object projected on the sky is at least 10 times longer than it is wide. And uh, the, the best fit to the variation in the light that it reflected was uh, that of a flat surface, not cigar-shaped the way you see in the famous cartoon, but actually a flat shape, a, a disc-like shape, a pancake-like shape. Well, we're going to have to take a break here um, and talk a little bit more about this, of course. And I've got, as I said, I've got a bunch of questions here that people have sent to me to ask you about this uh, from from the the listeners of the program. And it's the most questions I've ever gotten. So you you win on that point, I guess. Thank uh, you. Thank you. <laughs> and and I should say that anyone that wants a lo a more details should, should check out the book, which is out, what which was out yesterday. I was going to point out uh, that you do have the book. It's called The Extraterrestrial. It's called Extraterrestrial the first sign of intelligent life beyond Earth. And uh, it came out uh, yesterday. It's available on Amazon and any other bookstore. Okay. And I'll just mention quickly, I've got the best of Project Blue Book that came out along with Encountering the Desert and Roswell in the 21st Century, which you can find on Amazon as well. Uh, we will be back right after this with Dr. Avi Loeb talking about Oumuamua. 
So please stick around. Joined with by Dr. Dr. Abby Loeb. I was just thinking beyond where I was going there. Um, we are socially distancing because that's the thing we do in today's environment. I have just loads of questions here, and I'm not really sure where to begin. We've kind of talked about uh, the light sail and the distance between stars and what the object looked like as it entered our solar system. Um, I know a lot of the things speculated that it had come from the direction of Vega, and I was wondering is. Is that a, a legitimate projection point, or is there other points between Vega and Earth or somewhere else it might have come from? I mean, we've, we've got it from that general direction. Right. No. So it turns out that this object was uh, at rest in some special frame, which is called the local standard of rest, which is sort of like a public parking lot. Um, that's the frame that you get to when you average over the random motions of all the stars in the vicinity of the sun. So each star has some speed, and then you average over that for all the stars, and you end up with in the local standard of rest. And, and Oumuamua was at rest in that frame. And only one in 500 stars is so much at rest in that place. So it's sort of like finding a car parked in a public parking lot. You don't know which house it came from. And uh, Oumuamua cannot be associated with any star in our neighborhood because... All the stars move relative to that frame, and Oumuamua is at rest. We don't know what that means, actually, but it's one of the strange properties of Oumuamua. So when we read in the newspapers or whatever that it came from the direction of Vega, that doesn't mean it actually came from a planetary system no. around Vega. No, we actually, the, the reason that we saw it coming from that direction is that the sun is moving relative to the local standard of rest in some direction, and the sun just bumped into it, just like a ship uh, bumping into a buoy sitting at rest on the surface of an ocean. So the sun is moving roughly in the direction of Vega, and that's why it collided with this object, you know, roughly in that direction. But it's because of the sun's motion, not because of this object's motion. Well, we... I think the uh, information suggested it moved past Earth at about 60,000 miles an hour, which is relatively slow when you're talking about space, interstellar space travel. Um, is there any indication that it slowed down as it came to the uh, came near the uh, solar system to kind of view what's going on and then was speeding up or anything like that? Uh, no, there was no evidence for maneuvering. Um... In my so based on what we saw, in my view, even if it's a technological equipment, it may be dysfunctional by now. It's not operational. I mean, it was tumbling over eight hours, which indicates you know it didn't have a stable uh, you know um, orientation, and it was tumbling and over eight hours, and then it it just passed by us and. It was mostly moving, uh, following the, the force of gravity of the sun. And then on top of that, there was this extra push. So I don't think it was trying to necessarily spy on us. Also, the other thing to keep in mind is uh, it took it more than 10,000 years to cross the solar system. So, uh, you know, 10,000 years ago when it entered the solar system, we weren't interesting in particular to be for someone to spy on us, you know. Well, you say it entered the solar system 10,000 years ago? Yeah, it takes a long time to travel, uh, unless you're moving close to the speed of light. You know, the, the nearest star to us is four light years away. So even light takes four years to reach us from that star. Uh, but this object was moving, you know, at about um, uh, uh, one part in 10,000 of the speed of light. Uh, so that's why it takes it, of all the you know tens of thousands of years to cross that kind of a distance does that mean it's in kind of in an orbit around our sun now it's been no captured? no it it came from outside and it left in the you know it will leave the solar system because um, it's just moving too fast to be bound to the sun so um, now the point is we looked in the sky just for a few years and we found this 
object and there must be many more because unless you know unless we were very lucky and just found one that is extremely rare most likely uh, there are many of them and I, I think of them more mostly as space junk you know it's possible that other civilizations just produced a lot of objects and you know if we continue to look we will find many more well I know this Voyager which we launched I think in 1976 just left the confines of our solar system. Mm-hmm. Um, so that suggests it's traveling faster than Oumuamua? Um, well, no, it's traveling roughly at the same speed uh, within a factor of two. So Oumuamua was moving faster close to the sun, but now that it's uh, exiting, it it will move uh, similar at a similar speed to that of uh, Voyager 1, Voyager 2, or New Horizons. And that's the point, actually, that um, if um, objects like that were launched by other technological civilizations, you know, they will fill up interstellar space and they will move at roughly these speeds. And, um, we, you know, this is the first one that we discovered. And just like walking on the beach, and most of the time you see rocks and, and seashells, every now and then you see a plastic bottle that was uh, artificially produced. And we should apply the same approach here, that we should search for more objects that came from outside the solar system, and every now and then we might find one that uh, looks artificial. And I think it opens a completely new window into finding evidence for extraterrestrial life, because uh, in the past people focused on looking for radio signals, and that requires the sender of the signal to be alive at the time that the signal is sent. Sort of like speaking on the phone with someone. Uh, but uh, a message in a bottle is more similar to getting a letter in the mail, you know, and and you don't need the sender to be alive when the letter gets to you. It could have been sent by a civilization that is dead by now. So you have a better chance of finding relics from things that existed in the past, may not exist anymore, but they just sent out uh, objects into space, you know. So what you're kind of talking about here is astro... Astronomy or astroarchaeology? Yes, I call it space archaeology. Just like on Earth, we find evidence for cultures that are not around anymore, like the Mayan culture or others. We could do the same thing in space and search for relics of ancient civilizations. Yes. So I guess what I'm thinking about here is we've got Voyager moving out into interstellar space and maybe 50,000 years uh, another intelligence life form comes across it, and yet our civilization may be long gone by the time they see that, and it's just <laughs> that's right, a, exactly, a remnant. exactly. That's exactly my point. And uh, you keep uh, accumulating objects in space from every civil, every technological civilizations that launch something. Um, you keep collecting that, and I call it space trash or space. Now it's also possible that. You know, that, that there are objects filling up uh, interstellar space that are used as road, ma- uh, road signs, road posts for navigation. You can imagine a grid of such things placed uh, throughout interstellar space so that, you know, spacecrafts can find their way. Or you can imagine things like that being uh, put there as relay stations for communicating signals. Uh, we don't know what Oumuamua's nature was. We just found it. Well, I guess yeah, that, of course, leads to the the next question is, um, how would you prepare for the next time we find one of these? What would you do differently now that we think this is possible? What would we do differently when we spot one? Right. So the one most important thing is to discover one that approaches us uh, rather than recedes away from us because we couldn't really catch up with Oumuamua. It was moving much faster than our rockets. But if you find an object that is approaching us, then you can meet it along its path and uh, and uh, take a photograph of it with um, a, uh, by a camera that passes close to it. And and of course, a photograph is worth a thousand words. You can easily tell an artificial object um, apart from a, a rock. And so my hope is that in the coming years, people, Astronomers will be motivated to uh, monitor objects coming from outer space and uh, trying to figure out uh, what their nature is. Well, I think that uh, one of the questions I got was, 
somebody wanted to know why they, if they, this object was flying by, they didn't drop an anchor, so to speak, so they could uh, uh, get a good look at us. But I think you've answered that question by suggesting this was a, a dead artifact, that it's uh, out there floating around and the, the civilization that built it may be long gone and any crew it may have held is long gone as well. Exactly. Uh, we don't know what the, its purpose was and whether whoever produced it is still around. But this uh, this suggests, I guess, a type of interstellar flight, but isn't uh, the vast distances in space kind of uh, suggestive that we're not going to be seeing any interstellar travel in the very near future? Uh, no, because um, it depends how many such objects exist per unit volume, you know, that... Um, and, and, of course, it will depend on their size. There could be many more small objects that we, we don't notice because we detect these objects as a result of them reflecting sunlight. And if they are smaller than the size of Oumuamua, let's say uh, 10 meters in, or a few tens of feet in size rather than a few hundred feet in size, uh, like Oumuamua uh, was, uh, which is roughly the size of a football field, uh, if, if it's much smaller than the size of a football field, our telescopes are not sensitive enough to pick it up. And so there could be many more smaller objects passing through the solar system without us noticing it, noticing them. And um, my, my point mainly is to convince the community to consider it as a new way, a new window into finding evidence for other civilizations. Well, you know, I did a science fiction novel a number of years ago called The Rat Trap. And I mention this now because the whole purpose of it was a civilization had sent out all these things into space. And we detected one of them and we got our astronauts to there and they were captured inside. And the gag was they were looking for intelligent life that would be able to A, spot it, B, put somebody on it and get them inside the craft, suggesting an intelligence. And then the information would be sent back by radio as opposed to flying back through interstellar space. So um, it, it seems like we're, we're kind of talking about this here, that these this object, Oumuamua, may have been a... Um, some way of just detecting another civilization uh, or another right. more yeah. intelligent life. And and the advantage of a physical object is that it stays around, you know, and uh, whereas the radio signal, uh, once it passes by you, you can't detect it again. And so the thing is, we can figure out uh, what happened a long time ago and civilizations that are not around anymore. It's through the space archaeology approach that we were discussing before. And um, it doesn't necessarily mean just searching for messages in a bottle, but also looking for industrial pollution of atmospheres of planets around other stars or some structures on the planet's uh, surface or photovoltaic cells uh, on the surface of the day side of a planet. Uh, and, you know, that that's a whole new window into civilizations that may be dead by now. And I actually, in addition to my book, Extraterrestrial, which details a lot of these ideas, uh, I have also in six months an, a textbook about to be published um, that will provide the scientific background for all of this. Uh, so what you're saying, I guess, and, and I'm, I'm working off another question, which is that this was not necessarily directed at Earth. It was just kind of out there and we kind of intercepted it yes. uh, as we fly by. That's right. And there should be many more. That's my other point. That, I mean, we shouldn't obsess just about Oumuamua and say, oh, yeah, we missed an opportunity to detect everything about it. We shouldn't be too worried because I think there should be many more. I mean... The, the chance that we were lucky and saw the only one is, is extremely small. I mean, when I see an ant in the kitchen, you know, I, I, I get alarmed because I know that there are many more ants in the, in the kitchen. <laughs> well, we're going to have to take another break here. And uh, I just wanted to mention there are some other fine programs about the paranormal on the X-Zone Broadcast Network. So take a look at the listings at the X-Zone website and you'll find something that will spark your interest. You are listening to a different perspective on the Exxon Broadcast Network, and we will be back right after this, so please stick around.
I am joined by Dr. Abraham Loeb, the uh, Harvard astronomer who is proposing we have had an artificial artifact fly through the solar system or is flying in the solar system at the moment. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, which is kind of moving away from this topic somewhat, but it's into the into the realm of UFOs. I don't know what your feeling is, is about uh, UFOs. I, uh, I, I communicated with Harvard astronomer Dr. Donald Menzel many, many years ago when I was it's still in high school, as a matter of fact, and he was kind enough to send me a very long letter. But it was clear from his communications with me that he did not accept the idea of any of the UFOs we're seeing out there as being alien spacecraft. And I wondered if you did ever taken any look at that or had any impressions of what uh, are some of the UFOs possibly alien spacecraft? Yeah, well, first I should say that I don't think we deserve attention uh, because I don't think we're special or unique. You know, it, it always reminds me of the friends of my wife. When I started dating her, they used to think that there would be a prince coming on a horse and, and, and asking them to marry uh, him. And um, and it never happened, you know. So we, we, are, we have this fantasy that, you, you know, we are really unique and special and, and merit attention. I think completely differently. I think that... You know, the the Earth-Sun system is very common in the Milky Way galaxy. There are billions of other systems like it. And uh, if you arrange for similar circumstances, then you get similar outcomes. So I would think that we are middle-of-the-road kind of outcome. And um, you find many things like us all around. It's just like finding ants, you know. In, in, in a sidewalk, and you don't pay attention to each and every ant. So I don't think anyone cares so much about us to visit us and, you know, and, and, and attend to what, what we do. And uh, But putting that aside, this is just my initial, you know, thought on this subject. But but with respect to, to UFOs, you know, the, there is all this discussion about uh, declassifying documents that the Pentagon has and and looking back at reports that were filed decades ago. My point is we should look forward, not backward. Uh, these reports were based on instruments that existed decades ago, and now we have much better recording devices, you know, cameras and uh, sound sensors. And uh, So I think what we should do is simply deploy the best state-of-the-art instrumentation we have at those sites where the reports came from, and record anything we see and and then analyze it like a scientific experiment you know and you know in science uh things should be reproducible uh, you should get the you should be able to uh, find the same uh, results if you reproduce the the conditions and so uh, rather than rely on eyewitness testimonies and things like that we should just try to detect it ourselves and and do it in an open way so that the public can see and, and the science community can see what exactly is being monitored, rather than um, rely on some eye test, you know, eyewitness testimony that uh, may depend on the eyes of the beholder or on the, you know, on some artifacts of the instruments that were used back then. And um, and this way we can clarify the fog. You know, we can get a better sense of whether it means anything, rather than argue about, you know, the the how reliable are these reports. Well, I, what I'm getting at, though, is um, you said that uh, the Earth wasn't any, wasn't special, and I'm wondering that if I was a spacefaring race and I came across a civilization, an industrial civilization that is making its first steps into space, wouldn't that generate additional interest uh, from from my point of view? Simply because I've now found an, a, another intelligent race relatively close to my home world. Uh, not really, because uh, we tend to think that we are intelligent. I don't think. I don't think that we are particularly intelligent. And the way I define intelligence is that you are doing everything you can to promote your self-interests. Okay, so you have, like, for example, we have some resources, money, energy, all kinds. If we were to use it mostly for constructive purposes, I would say that we are intelligent. But if you open the newspaper every morning, you know, you see that most of our efforts are destructive you know we are doing things that are not good for us we are fighting other nations we are doing so i won't declare the human uh, species as intelligent i would say we are behaving 
not so intelligently and maybe we should get our act together and you know and then we will get some attention but for now we are just not intelligent enough and um and moreover you know um if you imagine um i mean the sun is one of the late uh forming stars in the universe so there are stars like the sun that formed billions of years ago and um they by now are probably much more advanced than we are and why would they care about us you know that to me it sounds like we are too self-centered we think too highly of ourselves we we are arrogant beyond the you know what is appropriate for us and that's part of the reason why the science community is not even even contemplating searching for technological signatures and just pushing it to the periphery of science and you know the mistake that is being made is to assume that maybe we are unique maybe we are special and i know it from my daughters when they were young you know my daughters before they when they were infants they tended to think that you know they are very special and unique and the world centers on them then they went to the kindergarten and they saw other kids and realized oh we are not that special they got a better perspective and for us to mature as a civilization we need to find others I mean other civilizations yeah only but, then we will get the, the correct perspective but I, but I I think that's a nice philosophical argument but I'm thinking more in the terms of um, Jane Goodall spent decades studying the chimpanzees which turned out to be a very maybe a warlike creatures and uh, uh, indulgent cannibalism and all kinds of things like that according to her studies but my point is simply this if I'm a spacefaring race and I find a solar system that has a life form on it that is obviously has a technical technical ability because we've we've created this uh, society and we're uh, building things and we're sending ships into space and that sort of thing i would think that if i was another spacefaring race i would be interested in studying the evolution of that from the point i discovered it not to see how it develops not necessarily because um in fact, if they are very uh, advanced relative to us, they might close themselves in in a cocoon. You know, it, I call it uh, social distancing on a cosmic scale. They they will keep themselves uh, closed off because they will build a habitat where they get everything they need and just close themselves off and not communicate with anything that would lower the quality of life. And, uh, uh, you know, if you... Um, you might think, oh, well, that that will not allow us to find any evidence uh, about them. Uh, that's not necessarily true because um, they must throw some trash. And, you know, just like uh, investigative journalists that uh, uh, search through the trash cans of uh, celebrities in Hollywood in order to find what they're doing in their private life, uh, we can also look at their trash, in this case, uh, space trash, and try to figure out what their lifestyle is. But does this really um, suggest there are no alien visitation going on now, meaning the, the UFO phenomenon? Are, are you suggesting there's really nothing to that? Or no, I'm, su- just, I'm just saying this is my starting point, okay? And I'm, I'm willing to be convinced otherwise, but the way I would be convinced is by doing a scientific experiment where I deploy instruments. And um, uh, I, I should say I, I discussed this topic with Joe Rogan about uh, a week and a half ago, and uh, and then there was a grassroots uh, initiative of people that l- uh, heard the podcast uh, to uh, raise funds for such a purpose. And, you know, I'd be happy to to work on that uh, if we get uh, the funding. Well, if and, and I think that's a fine idea, too. I, I know of one instance, in, which was uh, the green fireballs back in the late 1940s, the Air Force wanted to set up a number of cameras in New Mexico where the majority of the green fireballs were being observed, but they um, just never bothered to do that. It might have been a way of determining exactly what those things were as opposed to the speculations that were going on. I think they ended up with one camera, and it seemed like every time they'd see a green fireball in one place, they would move the cameras, and of course, you know, as if you're a hunter, you know that the thing you don't do is try to chase the game that way. Mm-hmm. Um, no, so but just, I, I have a different uh, approach in mind that uh, 
um, you know, if we get proper funding, in principle, you can deploy a lot of state-of-the-art instrumentation that wasn't available decades ago. And we can we can check these claims. And, you know, the, I'm not talking about miracles that happen once in a lifetime. You know, I'm let, talking let about... Me interrupt, let me interrupt you here for one one very good reason. I don't mean to be rude, but there is something called the, the MARDAR project, which is an, any number of um, UFO investigators, researchers around the world who have set up magnetometers, basically, to look for the big magnetic fields that are sometimes generated or allegedly generated by UFOs and check those out. So that's kind of what you're talking about here, but part of it already exists as there, as uh, these are deployed in many, many places around the world. I think there's 124 sites right now involved in the project. That's exactly what you're talking about, though. They're looking for something specific, and if the detector goes off, then the persons go out and try to gather the data, uh, define the object or, or gather data and take photographs of it. Isn't yeah, that well, exactly what you uh, want to do? That has the spirit of, of what I want to do, but I have to look at the details of what kind of detectors they use and... And only then I will be able to tell you if it's uh, up to the standards that I, I had in mind. But but yes, it's 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 that kind of an approach that I, I'm thinking about. Yes. Well, I uh, um, I can send you details on that if you want uh, to okay. take a look at it. But I would I would say that this is mostly a private enterprise, and the people who are doing it are funding it out of their own pockets. Yeah. So probably they don't really have access to the very best instrumentation that one can put. Um, so I'm talking about level of funding of tens of millions of dollars. And <laughs> unfortunately, I don't have that kind of money either. So that's okay. Uh, you, uh, but if 10 million people have one dollar, that's that's enough. Yes, absolutely. But I but I think ufology as it exists today is they're beginning to look in that kind of an arena, looking for a way of to be proactive as opposed to be reactive to it. Somebody calls us, we just had a UFO sighting here, and they rush out to see what they can find and talk to the witnesses and that sort of thing. Now they're looking for a way of detecting these things and, and gathering specific data once the detector goes off. And that would be another question, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's just not going to be fair to ask you about the electromagnetic effects that are sometimes observed by you uh, in relation to UFOs. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, yeah. I, um, all of these effects, uh, the reports that came from the past are, are, in my mind, were not done under controlled uh, experimental uh, standards. You know, and I, I would like to repeat the measurements with uh, the best instruments we have right now. But I would suggest to be argumentative, that that if we're talking about, say, electromagnetic effects, we have um, hundreds of cases of the, uh, the UFO interacting with the environment with these electromagnetic effects. Mm -hmm. And having that body of historical information suggests a way of now um, becoming more proactive and doing kind of what you want to do is, is look for, uh, find a way to detect these things and gather the proper data at, in the future. Right, right, yeah. That's that's my goal. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll take a break here because we've we've kind of hit a stopping point and we'll get back to our last section. The book is the is extraterrestrials. Yeah, extraterrestrial, the first sign of intelligent life beyond Earth, and it just came out uh, yesterday on Amazon. And it's uh, by Dr. Abraham Loeb, and uh, that's L O E B for those of you who want to know that sort of thing. Um, and we will be back talking to him some more, a little bit about UFOs, and I'll try to phrase my questions a little bit better so that we can I can get to the answer I'm really kind of looking for here. Uh, as I say, you know, we've got a number of nice programs on the X-Zone Broadcast Network. Take a look at the website at xzbn.net, and you'll have a, a good idea of what's going, at, going on. I'll have additional information and a, probably a link up to this at uh, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. I always try to put up a little bit of additional information, and I'll link to your book as well while, when I do that. And take a look at uh, www.vietnamgroundzero.blogspot.com. I will be back right after this with Dr. Loeb, and we'll talk about UFOs, so please stick around.
am here with Dr. Abraham Loeb, and uh, I do a bad job of promoting my own stuff on this program. I realize periodically I should be saying more things about what I've done and where you can find some of this, this research. And I get so involved in the conversations, I forget to do that, and I forget to help the guest with uh, um, promoting what he would like to promote and his products and his books as well. So I'll try to do better about that in the in the future. When we went away, we were kind of talking about UFOs, and um, I get the impression from our discussion that you do not really think that UFOs are alien spacecraft, or some UFOs are alien spacecraft, but you do not deny the possibility that these things could possibly be alien spacecraft. Uh, is, is that kind of where you're coming from? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I never have a prejudice, uh, but I want the evidence to be scientific in the sense that it's not relying on eyewitness testimony. So let me give you an example. Um, there is this biblical story in the Old Testament about Abraham that um, was heard the voice of God and uh, the voice of God said uh, that he should sacrifice his only son, Isaac. And... Um, if Abraham had uh, a voice memo up on his cell phone, he could have pressed the button and recorded the voice of God, okay, and then convinced everyone that indeed God spoke to him. But he didn't have that cell phone, and God never spoke to anyone else afterwards in the same way. So we have no way of telling whether the story that Abraham mentioned is real or not. It could have been an hallucination, who knows? So my point is, uh, in science, stories needs, need to be um, verified uh, by uh, being reproducible. You need to reproduce the conditions and record them on scientific instruments. So I, you know, I'm happy to listen to testimonies that say I, I was abducted, I, 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 I saw this, I saw that, but it doesn't stand up to the standards of science, because in science you need objective measurements, you know, like instruments, detecting things, and then you analyze the signal that was detected. So there is nothing to prevent us from putting, deploying instruments, scientific instruments, at the same sites where the reports came from. And we can see if we detect anything. But wouldn't you suggest, and I love the term instrumentality, by the way, which comes out of I think, the science fiction film um, Forbidden Planet, be that as it may. Okay. Um, we have reports from ground observers backed up by radar testimony with photographs of the radar scopes and photographic evidence. Doesn't that kind of meet some of your scientific uh, parameters? Uh, no, not really, because um, photographs are misleading. I mean, it could be, you know, a natural phenomena or it could be, um, you know, something going wrong with the camera. So what you really want is multiple instruments detecting the same thing and getting, a, you know, not getting something faint and, and barely detectable, but getting a clear image of what it looks like. And it's, you know, so um, rather than relying on individuals, you know, that happen to be at the right place at the right time by chance, if you place those instruments in advance and you know exactly what, you know, what you put there, and you detect something unusual, then, you know, it looks really uh, interesting. Uh, that That's the kind of rigor that I, I want to see in, in the detections. But I think I think we're kind of talking across purposes here, and I don't. I guess I'm not making my, my point clear enough that some of what you asked for already exists in the UFO phenomenon. And I'm thinking of radar cases where you've got multiple radar sets involved. Yeah, that's interesting. No, I mean, I mean uh, if there is... Obviously, we should look at past reports to see if there are interesting cases. And But my point is, for me, to follow on these, I want to reproduce them, right? So I want to see something similar with instruments that we currently have that are much better than used to be in the past. So the signals should be even clearer with these instruments. Uh, we ju I just want to reproduce them so that I'm sure that it's not uh, something that by chance happened, you know, some male function of something or... I just want to make sure that I see it again. So what you're, I, I, I think the ideal situation is you would have multiple witnesses at, independent witnesses at multiple locations photographing the same object at the same time. 
Right, not witnesses, actually, instruments, yes. But, I mean, they're photographing the same thing at the same time, and with everybody with a cell phone with a very good camera on it now, we should be able to f get a, a number of UFO cases that way Right, right. if the people would stop looking at their phones and look up into the sky. Yeah, but I'm not talking about people, I'm talking about, you know, detectors that will um, record what they what they see. So it, it will be in electronic form. You will have data that comes out of those recording devices and cameras and so forth. Forget about people. I don't want people to give me the impression of what they see. I don't need the testimony. I get the data directly from all these instruments and then I, I analyze it. That's the way science is done. You know, nobody is asking the scientists to sit in the room where the experiment is done and tell, you know, tell us back what they see and what their impression is. That's not the way science is done. There are always instruments that are being used to record the data, and then you look at the data that comes out of those instruments, simply because instruments are objective. You know, they are not, they don't have feelings, they don't have impressions, they don't have hallucinations. They just record whatever comes into them. And then you analyze that data. That's the way science is done. I don't want to hear someone saying, oh, you know, I saw this bright light and it looked really strange. And then I saw something and I was abducted and then something happened. I don't want these things. I, want I got to get that. I got that. And I understand that. And I said witnesses because you have to, because I was thinking if somebody had to push the uh, shutter on the camera or. No, no, you don't need to push because it will be done automatically. You can arrange these things to be done. Uh, in fact, it can be monitored all the time. You know, the sky can be... And uh, if nothing unusual happens, then you just dump the data and forget about it and continue to monitor. Um, but I want it to be automatic. I don't want it, people to be part of it. Okay, fair enough. And as I say, I think the, the MARDAR project has some of those elements that you're looking for in it. And I will send you some information about that and you can okay. see or, or who to contact. The one thing you need to know about me is that I don't have a prejudice, not as if I will dismiss something just, you know, just because I think in advance that it must be wrong. And I will look at whatever you send me and just decide for myself, you know, and then uh, I want to be able to reproduce it. If, if it's real, you know, it should come back again. You know? And I think I think that's part of the, the philosophy behind the Mardar project is to do exactly that. The instruments collect the data. The directions, the the change in the magnetic fields, and all of that kind of thing—the kind of data that you would like—and maybe you'd have some suggestions on how they could improve improve their observations, uh, improve right. the instrumentality to get the kind of observations you'd like right. to see. No, I mean, a lot of people can have the you know the, the same intentions. The question is, who does the right job? You know, so yes. people can have good intentions but just do a bad job or or not do the state of the art job and. Uh, I'm try I'm arguing in favor of doing, you know, just the best job possible. Oh, absolutely. I, I think that's great. I, and like I said, I had, like, multiple questions here that we just haven't gotten to. Um, radio astronomy has been searching for um, radio signals from other civilizations. And I think somebody, and it may have been Frank Drake for all I know, said, what if everybody's listening as opposed to sending out Radio waves, of course, we've been broadcasting radio waves for, what, 120 years now into the into space, so somebody might have been able to detect those. Um, you're not a big fan of radio astronomy? Or, I mean, the, the, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence using radio astronomy, I suppose I should say. Yeah, no, I mean, um, we've been broadcasting for about a century, and we were not careful about it, because now there is a bubble of radio waves out to 100 light years, and... If there is any civilization out there that is equipped with uh, radio telescopes, they know about us by now. Uh, and my, my philosophy is that, uh, you know, if you enter into a room full of strangers, first you listen before you speak, you know, because you don't know how dangerous this room is. And we haven't done that. We spoke very loud uh, in the past without paying too much attention. And we may bear the consequences uh, decades from now, you know, some, something may happen. But um, uh, in general, um, radio signals are good as long as the transmitter, the sender of the radio signals is still alive. Otherwise, it will stop transmitting. And uh, that's why it may be rare, because you, you can only see civilizations that are exactly, that are alive exactly at the time that you're observing them. Uh, and that may be a short window. For example, we were transmitting only for 100 years. 
out of the four and a half billion years age of the of the Earth, you know, and uh, that's a, sh a very short window relative to the total amount of time, and um, therefore the chance of observing another civilization being in this phase where they are transmitting might be small, and that's why there may not be so many of them. But uh, the thing about the objects that I was mentioning before, like Oumuamua, that keeps piling up. Uh, if a civilization lives for a hundred years or a thousand years and produces uh, space debris, um, after they are done, uh, we can still find it. Well, I, uh, I've got to thank you for taking your time to chat with me because I, uh, I find it absolutely fascinating. I will make one quick comment here, and it kind of reflects on contact by um, Carl Sagan, where the, I think the signal they received was of um, Adolf Hitler. <laughs> uh, uh, I've always worried about they picked up something like Laverne and Shirley, which shows us not at our most intelligent operation. Don't, don't worry about it. We are not intelligent anyway. I mean, irrespective. <laughs> but uh, one thing I wanted to mention to you, since you mentioned your military background, uh, I, I served in the military at a young age. I was born in Israel. And uh, and uh, when I was in the paratroopers, uh, I remember the statement that sometimes a soldier needs to put his body on the barbed wire so that other soldiers can pass through. And, you know, I feel that way in terms of the reception I get to these ideas that we discussed in the scientific community. And I, I do it, uh, you know, I, I suffer the pain. Uh, I do it because I want to promote a better future for the younger generation so that they will be able to discuss these subjects freely without being bullied in the future. Well, I appreciate your attitude on that and certainly uh, appreciate your military service. <laughs> I, uh, I I learned uh, in my military service uh, that you do not walk when you can ride and you do not ride when you can fly. So that was why I was a helicopter pilot. By the way, I did parachute. I drove tanks and I, I know all of these experiences. Yes. Well, I, I, I flew helicopters, so I just flew over all of that stuff. Anyway, thank you, Dr. Uh, Loeb. I appreciate you taking your time to chat with us about these subjects and uh, your, your thoughts on UFOs as well. Your book is The Extra, is Extraterrestrials. And you can find it on Amazon.com. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, next week, I'm going to be speaking with Don Schmidt. We're going to delve into the background of uh, UFOs. I think we're going to have a chat of where ufology is, is uh, going in the future and what we've seen and what we think about uh, some of the uh, best cases, I suppose. Uh, and I'm sure Roswell will rear its ugly head during our conversation simply because I think at this point, Don and I have probably studied it longer than anybody else who has uh, been around, with possible exception. Tom Carey joined us at the beginning as well, so he's, he's involved in that as well. Uh, the latest book that I have done, of course, is called Pro The Best of Project Blue Book, and it looks back at some of the history, and I think it brings out some of the things that we were kind of talking about today, where... Uh, instrumentality was involved. And I'm thinking specifically of the Washington National sightings, but there's also landing trace cases and that sort of thing that gets us to that point and then suggests uh, directions that we could go into the future uh, with our investigations. And like I said, I just I had carloads of questions for Dr. Loeb um, dealing with all sorts of things, and we just didn't get it to. Maybe we can get him back sometime to, to chat about that as well. Uh, I also, you know, always want to say that there are some very good programs on the X-Zone Broadcast Network. And uh, take a look at the xzbn.net website and see what uh, might uh, trip your trigger there. Uh, see what you might want to come up with in the future to take a look at. Uh, there's very good stuff there. Also, if you're interested in Roswell, take a look at Roswell in the 21st century because I think it gives a better cold case examination of it than we've seen in the past. You have been listening to A Different Perspective on the Exome Broadcast Network. I'll be back in approximately 167 hours. Thanks for tuning in.